Um, and so I want to tell you, you might not know this about me, but I actually spent a year on a missionary team to Denmark. And as part of that, we actually got, I, I guess you'd call her a, a Danish exchange missionary, like not an exchange student, but like an exchange missionary. Uh, and so there were five of us Americans and then this one Danish gal. And, uh, and so she came across and, and joined us in the States. We spent four months in the States, you know, building up support and interest, and then four months in Denmark, and then, and then four months back in the States. And it was really interesting to see the culture shock for this 20-year-old um, gal visiting the United States for the first time. Her, her English was amazing. It was better than all of our English because um, she actually knew the rules of grammar and stuff. Um, so her English was perfect, but, but the culture of America was definitely off-putting to her. And, and there was a lot of things where she was um, just really skeptical, kind of weirded out by, by things that we take for granted in our country. Uh, like, for example, like the cars, the fact that everybody has a car and drives everywhere. I mean, it could be just around the corner and we drive. And, and she was always kind of bragging and say, oh, well, in Denmark, you know, we walk everywhere we, or we ride our bicycles everywhere. And we say, well, yeah, your country's the size of a postage stamp. You can... You, you can walk and bike everywhere. You know, like, we, America's big. We've got to drive. You know, our big gas-guzzling cars is what we do. Um, the other, one other thing that threw her off was, uh, was um, McDonald's. Not, not that we have them, because they have McDonald's in Denmark. Uh, but the fact that our McDonald's in the United States gives you free soda refills. That was new. Uh, and again, there's a little bit of smugness there where she was like, well, this is why Americans are so obese. Is, you know, and we're saying... But it's free refills. Like, come on. Like, that's way better than your stingy Danish McDonald's, you know. Then not only that, I don't know if you know this, Danish McDonald's, they charge you for ketchup if you go to McDonald's in Denmark. Like, you have, like, you have to pay for the ketchup. But there, but there was one other thing that just, that really above everything else was something that was so weird to her, was she just kept saying, you Americans are so obsessed with peanut butter. She's like, you guys eat so much peanut butter. And, and she was saying, it's not that great. <laughs> I don't know why you guys are so obsessed with this. And, and I, I actually looked it up for the sake of, of the message this morning. I did not know this. Americans eat over a billion pounds of peanut butter every year. One year, billion pounds of peanut butter we eat. And so we've got this Danish exchange missionary, and she's saying, you guys are obsessed, and you're weird because it's not even all that good. And, and we didn't think much of it. It was just one more thing of culture shock, you know. But, but a couple weeks later, we had the opportunity. Uh, we were staying with a host family who provided lunch for us, and they made us all peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And, and so we, we had it, and again, we weren't thinking much of it, the five of us Americans. But this Danish gal, she took a bite, and she said, Wait, this is peanut butter? This is amazing. And we said, well, yeah, what else would it be? This is peanut butter. And she said, this is not peanut butter like I've tried it. And I got to find out for myself. When we went to Denmark a few months later, uh, one of the things on our bucket list was we went to a Danish grocery store. And, and funny thing, the Danish grocery stores will have an American food aisle uh, it's like this kind of specialty section, you know, it's like half a shelf, you know, with hot dogs and, um, and it's got generally American style peanut butter, you know, like, like every grocery store like kind of stocks this. And, and so we got it and we tried it and it is definitely brown and it is definitely made from peanuts and it is awful. 
Like, it's like someone had, had like peanut butter described to them and they said, all right, I think I can do that. And so then they made it and, and it is worthless. Like, like we all took one bite and we just said, this is nothing we ever need to eat ever again. And, and so suddenly the disconnect made sense, right? Like, like, like she um, had been experiencing this thing. She'd been calling it by the same name uh, and yet it was awful. And so then when she hears Americans talk about how amazing peanut butter is and eat a billion pounds of it every year, she's going, are Americans dumb? Like, like, why would they be so obsessed over this thing that's not any good? And what's interesting is that, to me at least, is that she never at any point in that thought process, and, and you know, Europeans in general, you know, they don't think that maybe there's something that they're missing, right? They don't think, oh, you know, I've tried peanut butter, it's not great, Americans love peanut butter, maybe they know something I don't know, maybe it's different. No, what they think is Americans are weird. And the reason I bring up that story is because as we talk about the cost of doing business in relationships, the word that I think I need to talk about and we need to focus on today is forgiveness. But when it comes to forgiveness, I suspect that you, I, pretty much everybody around us, we are all Danish missionaries. Because we have only ever experienced the Danish peanut butter version of forgiveness. And it's not great. And then we hear these Christians and we hear the Bible and God and they're always talking about forgiveness and forgiveness, forgiveness. And and we don't think, oh, maybe there's something amazing about forgiveness that I don't know. What we think is, I've tried forgiveness. It is not that great. Why does the Bible keep going on and on and harping on and on about forgiveness? And so I suspect that we are in the same position as this Danish exchange missionary that I, that I got to know, that, that, we, that we take this thing, we've, we've experienced this thing that has this label of forgiveness, and we assume that this must be all there is. And we don't think it's all that special. And so if you're like me, you've probably experienced something like this. You've maybe experienced conditional forgiveness, Right, this idea that, um, all right, well, I'll forgive you, but you have to change who you are first. You have to become someone who is worthy of my forgiveness. You have to promise not to do this behavior. You have to express repentance and contrition. Uh, and so we've experienced conditional forgiveness. But, but ultimately, that's not actually forgiveness, right? Like that's just saying I need to be a better person so that you'll like me more. But if we think that's forgiveness, then we've seen how this falls short and this is not something that's life-giving or amazing or, or changing in any way. Conditional forgiveness is probably something we've all experienced, but I don't think it's something we should really be labeling forgiveness. Or maybe we've experienced the flip side of conditional forgiveness. That's what I call probationary forgiveness. Uh, that's what I grew up with probably most uh, in an Air Force household. Um, my parents, they got unconditional forgiveness, right? They, they would forgive me. They'd say, all right, sw- slate's wiped clean. We're, we're, we're good now, but don't do it again, right? Like now you are on probation. And so, yeah, we're going to be good. You're not grounded. But if you mess up again, if you do this again, well, then there's going to be consequences. And again, that sounds fair. Like that sounds like a perfectly fine thing, but, but it's not forgiveness, You see, because probationary forgiveness, what that does is it creates a a relationship and a a connecting environment where you are always walking on eggshells. Because maybe the next thing you do is the thing that's going to make forgiveness fall short in that relationship. Maybe the next thing you do is going to end your good standing. Uh, And it's not a a positive or a healthy or a hopeful way to live. Uh, And it's how I grew up, was just eggshells. I never knew what thing was going to be the thing that would take the forgiveness away. Or maybe you've experienced trump card forgiveness. 
Maybe it's, I'm a card player. You might not be. Trump card is where, like, when you're playing a game and you can have the best card, you can have, like, an ace of diamonds. But if someone else has Trump, they can play their card on your ace. And even though your ace is higher, the Trump card wins. Uh, even if it's just a two or something, the Trump card always beats the good cards, uh, even if they're higher cards. And, and I've experienced forgiveness this way, where, where maybe the relationship has, someone has forgiven someone else, but now because of that act of forgiveness, they've got the Trump card in their back pocket, ready to play it any given time, right? And you've seen that play out, you know, where people are saying, a couple saying, hey, we should go to dinner after church. You know, where, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go to dinner? Oh, I'd like to go, I'd like to go to Olive Garden. I love Olive Garden. And you're like, oh, Olive Garden, we go to Olive Garden all the time. You know, you know could, could we not go to Olive Garden? Well, maybe you shouldn't have cheated on me. And then we wouldn't have to go to Olive Garden. Olive Garden it is. Okay. Right? And maybe it's not that extreme, but, but you've experienced that, right? right? Where, where this thing, yes, you were forgiven, but, but it's now perpetually uh, available to be held against you. Uh, and again, that's not forgiveness. That, that's just someone actually having a power play over you. And, and if you take that principle and expand it out, then I've even seen lifelong relationships where, where, where forgiveness is actually just setting up this dynamic where one person has the permanent moral high ground and the other person has the permanent moral low ground. And yes, they technically said the words, I forgive you, but now the, the, the defining dynamic of this relationship is that one of you is down here because don't you ever forget that you had to be forgiven. And don't you ever forget that I was the one who forgave you. And, and that's how we're going to move through life from this point on. And I've seen people that are just broken down and dejected because they're they are trapped in this dynamic where, yes, they've technically been forgiven, but I don't think it's actually what forgiveness is supposed to be. And, and if you are like me and you've experienced any of these, or maybe you've even inflicted some of these on people, what I would propose to you is that this is the Danish peanut butter version of forgiveness. And, and, and I'd ask you to consider that rather than saying forgiveness is not all it's cracked up to be, but to maybe consider that, that maybe we've just been doing it wrong and calling it forgiveness. And so as we consider that together, let, let's turn to uh, what our Bible is for today. Uh, so we're talking about the cost of doing business, being in relationship with each other. And we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Uh, and if you're here with us, you want to follow along the Pew Bible, it's uh, 1184 on that page. Or if you've got the Bible on your phone uh, or anything like that, feel free to pull it up. Uh, but so this is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to a community of believers uh, in Colossae. And so this is what he says. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I think these last five words are, are, are the, the meat, the most powerful part of, of this section. Um, because I think this is where we go wrong and this is where we don't understand the depths. Because like I've been describing with this peanut butter analogy, I, I think what happens is we tend to assume that the Lord forgives as we forgive others. Right? We, we see this pattern of human forgiveness, the, this Danish peanut butter version, and it's not great. And so then we assume that the Lord's forgiveness must not be that great either. 
And we don't know why people spend so much time talking about it, and we don't necessarily think it's something that we need all that much of. And so as we focus on this, the, the, to, can we turn it around? Can we instead say that maybe there's this amazing way that God forgives us that's different than what we've experienced, and in fact, our human forgiveness should conform to that pattern of the way God forgives us. And so let's explore this a little bit, all right? So let's look at, if we've only experienced Danish peanut butter, let's look at the American peanut butter of God's forgiveness. Because if you have had it, you know that American peanut butter is life-changing. It is amazing. All right, so this is God's forgiveness. This is the American peanut butter version. See now, And this, it looks like this. God's forgiveness is undeserved, right? God forgives undeservedly. And I want to unpack this for a second because I think that we know this with our heads. I think many of us could, could say this, oh, yep, God's forgiveness is undeserved. But I don't know that we really believe it in our hearts. And I say that because I know that I don't believe it uh, in my heart. And I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Because yes, I have my moments of, of self-doubt and, and, and feeling worthless and, and like, like there's something wrong with me. But I have far more moments where I think I'm actually pretty special, like just to be honest. I think I'm a pretty all right guy. I think my wife married me because, you know, I I swept her off her feet. I think this church wanted me to be a pastor because I'm a a pretty good speaker. And and, and I tend to bring that assumption into my own relationship with God. And yes, I'll say the words, God forgives me undeservedly. But I deserve it a little bit, right? I mean, I I do. Uh, And I think maybe you're there because living in West County, I, I think it is so easy to compare ourselves to others around us. And when we do, we come out pretty well. We, you know, I, I'm, we're more successful than that person, or I make more money than that guy, or, or, uh, or my, my relationship is better, my kids are more talented than those kids. And, and, and we have all of these comparisons that make us feel like we're, we're in a pretty good place. There are two problems with that. The first is, if that ends up defining your worth and your value, the comparison, then the moment you lose any one of those things then you start to lose your worth and your value as well. If you suddenly don't have a job that pays you better than the other people, if, if your kids suddenly aren't as talented as you kind of thought they might have been, or if your relationship doesn't work out the way it was supposed to, then we're in for a real fall. And, and not only that, I think it's important to remember for me, this is a, a, a metaphor that I try to use, that, that this idea that, that we're all, all of us human beings walking around earth are kind of like criminals who are in a prison, and, and you only really see the other criminals that are with you. And so you think to yourself, I mean, that guy, that guy murdered like eight people. You know, all I did was steal a couple of cars. You know, like, like um, come on, like, I, he deserves to be here. I don't deserve to be here, right? Because if your metric of comparison is just the other criminals, then, then yeah, you're going to think you're fine. But anyone outside the prison is going to look at you and say, no, you all deserve to be there. Just because it's not as bad as that guy's crime, it's still bad. And that's God's perspective on us. See, when we're comparing ourselves to other human beings, we're forgetting that there's actually a standard that matters far more. And by that standard, I promise you, you do not deserve anything good from God. You don't. You might be better than that guy down the street, but you're still not good enough for what God believes and needs you to be or or the standard he has for you. And so that's why this matters because even though we're not, even though we don't deserve, even though we don't live up to the standard, God still forgives us undeservedly. He just says, no, this is something you have for me, even though you're all, you know, the equivalent of, of criminals running around in jail, even though you all fall short, even though you're all broken, I forgive you undeservedly. Not only that, God forgives us unconditionally. 
I think part of the Danish peanut butter of human forgiveness is that, is that we try to use our forgiveness as a way to control the people around us. We, we, we want it to be a thing that, that changes them uh, and, and that they need to, yeah, fine, I'll forgive you, but then you've got to now live up to my standards and comport yourself the way I think you need to behave. Uh, and, and we struggle with this, this idea that God would just make it unconditional. I think about the story, you might have heard it, if you, if you know the story Les Miserables, maybe you've read the book or you've seen the musical, um, but there's this opening little anecdote at the very beginning of the book that, that is, is so famous that it's kind of transcended the rest of the story, where, where this criminal has been let out of jail you know, for the first time, and, uh, and, a, and a humble priest, a very lowly, doesn't have a lot of money priest, takes him in and lets him spend the night, and the priest only has these two candlesticks made of silver that he values, and and the next morning, the, the, the ex-criminal steals the candlesticks and runs away and then gets caught by the police. And the police bring him back to the curate and, and they say, hey, we caught this guy stealing your candlesticks. And, and the curate says, oh, no, he didn't steal them. I gave them to him. And not only that, you forgot to take all my silver uh, utensils as well. Here, take those. And he gives him more. And then the rest of the story of Les Miserables is this guy who, who has received this forgiveness uh, then turns his life around and, and lives a life of magnanimity and, and, and generosity and, and, and has a different life. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I hate that story. I hate it. Because I think, well, yeah, if I knew that if I forgave someone that they'd turn their life around, well, then sure, I'd let them have my candlesticks. But I don't know that. I might give you that. And you continue to be an unrepentant, unregenerate person. And I'm not going to take that risk. I'm only going to forgive if I can control the way you're going to receive it. I want to put conditions on my forgiveness. But that is not how God does it. God says, you have my forgiveness undeservedly, but also you just have it. You don't have to do anything different. You just have it. Now, God might want us to live differently for our own sakes. Like there might be some changes it'd be good for us to make because God wants blessings for us, but it is not a condition for his forgiveness. His forgiveness uh, is beyond any condition that we might do and, and anything behavior we might change. And not only that, God forgives us. This one blows my mind too. He forgives us repeatedly. And this is so unlike human forgiveness because human forgiveness says, you know, all right, you stole something from me. Fine, I forgive you. Oh, you stole something again. All right, maybe I forgive you again. Third time, whoa, 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 we're done. Like, I can't keep forgiving you if you're just gonna keep wounding me in the same way. And, and, and so it doesn't compute. It doesn't make rational sense to us as, as we try to fathom that God's American peanut butter is, no, it's, it's repeated. It's, it's over and over again, no matter what. And, and, and Christians, I know, have struggled with this because if you even, here's a history lesson for you. The first couple hundred years uh, of Christianity, they didn't actually baptize uh, babies the way that we often do now because they, um, they thought that if they looked at scripture, they, there was only one promise of God's forgiveness. And that was that, that Jesus said, when, when you are baptized, all sins that you have committed uh, are forgiven. But then the Christian said, well, but what happens after we're baptized? What, what, what if it's not forgiven? You know, and they didn't pay attention to these other parts of the Bible that said things like, you know, 70 times 7, God repeatedly forgives. And so what happened was even the Christians themselves did not believe God's word at face value. And so they saved baptism for as close to death as they could get it. Because, you know, if you got baptized too early, you might commit some more sins that God might not forgive. That if you keep repeatedly sinning, he might not do it. And, and so they actually treated baptism like spiritual life insurance. Like, like wait till as, as long as possible to get it uh, so that you get the most value out of it. And when someone would get sick, they'd actually invite the priest over and they'd kind of wait and see how the sick person did. And if they started to take a turn for the worse, quick, baptize him so everything gets forgiven. Uh, but if he got better, oh, you know, hold off, hold off, you know, because you know, he's got more sinning to do uh, if he's alive. We have such a hard time believing 
that this is true, that this is something God actually would offer to us. Because ultimately, finally, what God's forgiveness is so different is that God forgives us completely. He takes everything that he has, all of him, and he gives it for all of us. He doesn't just look at one thing you didn't forgive that, but all the rest of your life uh, is, is still fallen and broken. He, he, he takes everything he had and he says, I want, I want it all for you, for all of you. This is what God offers. And I'll speak for myself. This has been rarely experienced in my own life. Because I, partly because I don't believe half of it. Like, it sounds good. It sounds like something that, that a good God would do. But, but I don't ultimately think he means it. Because if I really examine any of these things, that they don't make human sense. But this is the peanut butter that is waiting for us. If we would just take God's word at face value, if we would trust that he has something more powerful and important for us. And not only that, if we were willing uh, to taste this, this goodness of God, this forgiveness that he offers us, I think it would also then completely reorient and change each and every one of our lives and our connections with those around us. And the reason I, I think we, we don't always do it is because I think we try to make forgiveness do something it doesn't. You know, we, we think it's going to immediately fix everything if all these things happen, but it doesn't quite. There, there are other steps that have to happen, and we're going to talk more about those you know, throughout the series. But, but for now, I want to focus on this, that forgiveness does one thing. All of these traits of God, it does one thing. It changes identities of the people who are involved in broken relationship. Right? So, so if someone sins against you, if someone hurts you, forgiveness is not you saying, oh, it's fine. Everything's okay now. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying to that person, your identity is no longer defined by what you did to me, but by what I choose to do now. Forgiveness is saying that their identity no longer is defined by their bad action but by your gracious choice. And you might think, how can words do that? Like, like forgiveness, it's just words. Uh, but words are so powerful. Words do far more than we realize. And to just give you one example, is think about when we talk about the best movie of the year, right? Like every year there's the Oscars and there's this Academy Award. Uh, and, and every year there's a movie that they say, this movie is the best movie of the year. Did that movie change? from the day before it won the Oscar to the day after? Did they refilm any of it? Did they change actors or actresses? Did they get a different director? No. The movie is completely the same from one day to the next, but the difference is that someone has spoken a word over it. Someone has said, this movie is now the best movie of the year, and that changes so much. Uh, and just if you follow movies, um, that, it changes the financial future of that movie. Now it's going to make more money because now people want to see it. That's how it was for me. Uh, the Shape of Water is the most recent best picture uh, of last year, and I had no interest in that movie at all. It's about a woman falling in love with like a sea monster. And I'm like, what? Like, that does not sound appealing to me. But then it won Best Picture, and, and, and someone said, oh, this movie's amazing. And, and I said, well, all right, maybe I, I guess I do need to see that movie now. All right, words actually change identity, uh, even though that doesn't always seem like something that would make sense to us, but, but it, it does. And so we are able to change other people's identity through the act of forgiveness.
And maybe that's not enough for you. It's just not always enough for me. I don't necessarily want to change their identity uh, because honestly, they don't deserve it most of the time. And, and just to give you one example of that, some of you might have followed a couple of months ago the trial of Larry Nasser. This was a man uh, who took advantage of his position to assault and molest hundreds of underage women. And for decades, they, they, they tried to talk about it and, and tried to complain, and no one believed them. But then finally, the evidence mounted enough that, that, they, that he was put on trial. And at the trial, they invited all, any woman who wanted, any, any person who'd been uh, victimized by this man to come speak at the trial. And you can guess how angry most of them were and, and how they spoke words uh, of, of just justice and condemnation. Even the judge herself got in on the act that the judge, when she passed down the guilty verdict and the sentencing, uh, said that, you know, I've never in my life been more pleased to give a sentence to someone. And she was so grateful that, uh, that this man was going to get what he deserved. But there was one voice who was different. And if you followed along with the trial, then uh, you might have heard of Rachel Den Hollander. Uh, and this, this woman was one of his victims, was someone who, who came and stood with everyone else, but, but her tone was markedly different than that of the other people. This is uh, just an excerpt of what she said to the man uh, who abused her. She said, the Bible speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. And so what was it that made Rachel's tone so different well, I think it's that she understood this truth of forgiveness, but that she also understood actually an even deeper level. See, it's not just that when I forgive, I change your identity, but in fact, your identity and mine is no longer defined by what you did. See, for so many of these women, this act of abuse, this injustice still continued to define for them who they were. But for Rachel Den Hollander, it didn't. Because she knew that her own identity was defined on the basis of God's forgiveness for her. And so she was able to change her identity, not just his. Because she was saying, not only are you now a forgiven person, but I am the kind of person who forgives others in spite of injustice. Julie Lorenz uh, is on our pastoral ministry team here. And she shared a quote with me this week, uh, which says that um, forgiveness is setting the prisoner free and discovering that you we're the prisoner. See, we don't just change someone else's identity when we forgive. We actually change our own. And we, we form ourselves to be the kind of person that can create healthy and holy and healing connections with those around us because of how we are different. And I learned that firsthand myself because even this is hard for me because what I choose to do is not always what I should have done. Uh, there's, there was a man who for many years uh, in my life was just uh, was a thorn in my side. 
uh, he, he was toxic. He, he was hard to deal with. Um, my wife got used to my coming home and, and just complaining about him because she just knew that, that this was the guy that was ruining uh, so much of my own life. And um, uh, in fact, I even, I even drew up, a, you know, conceived of a bumper sticker that I wanted to give him to put on his car. Uh, and the bumper sticker would say, Jesus loves you and everyone else thinks you're a jerk. And I knew he wouldn't put it on his car, but I just wanted to give it to him so that he knew, you know, what, what I thought of this person. And, and, and for years, we, did, we had a really bad relationship. Uh, and we ultimately found kind of some stability and, and we were able to kind of, you know, live, get along and, and live together. But, but there was never really reconciliation. And then I moved away and, you know, kind of like the Adele song, you know, got, got to get a thousand miles away and just was like, I don't ever have to think about this guy again. Great. And then, after I'd been away for a little bit, I, I, I got news that, uh, that his teenage son had been tragically killed. And for the first time in, in our entire relationship, for the first time, I had a glimpse of how I think God must look at all the people on earth. Because as much as I disliked this guy, as much as he made my life miserable for years, all I could think in that moment was, if I could have done anything to save his son. If I could have done anything to spare him this grief and this pain, even though I don't like you, I would have done it because no one, no one should have to experience the pain of losing your child tragically young. It's the worst thing I can think of. What could I have done to spare you from it? And in that moment, I finally understood a little bit of how God can look at humanity, can look at serial killers, and can look at people who do awful and evil things, but he knows the worst thing that could happen to them. And it's not just losing a child, but, but it's, it's damnation, eternal separation from the life-giving presence of God. And God looks at people and says, I don't want that for you. No matter how bad you might be, no matter how much damage you might have done to the people around you, that's not what I want. And he gives them forgiveness. And, and so in that moment, I realize that it's not just what I choose to do, but it's actually recognizing what God has chosen to do for me and for even the worst people around us. This is ultimately what American peanut butter is about. It's saying that forgiveness is not just a a holier than thou, a nice polite way of, of punishing someone or of creating quid pro quo and power dynamics. Forgiveness is actually saying your identity and mine can be changed and is no longer dependent on the ways we all screw up, but is dependent on one divine act of love and mercy and forgiveness. And so I hope for you, that whatever your identity has been built on, maybe it's been built on success and worthwhile relationships and, uh, and, and you found meaning in these other things, but, but could I encourage you to find your identity in knowing that first and foremost, God forgave you. And in that moment, all the other labels you have, father, wife, worker, boss, uh, uh, everything else took second place, took back seats to this one label that you are forgiven child of God. That's who you are. And if you are that, then you actually have been given supernatural power by God himself to speak that same identity onto the people around you. You know them. They're in your life. There are people walking around who have experienced nothing but Danish peanut butter, and it's terrible. And you can say to them, I've got something better for you. 
And you might not believe it. You might not trust that this is. But if you would just taste and see, it would change your life and change ours. Please pray with me. Lord God, you are the one who uses this language in your holy word. You are the one who says to your children, taste and see how wonderful is my love, my mercy, my forgiveness. And so Lord, I ask that you would right now truly flood those of us who are here to worship your name with the delightful, life-changing American peanut butterness of your forgiveness for us. And Lord, I ask that you would also then empower each and every one of us here to share that same divine forgiveness that, that trumps and transcends all human patterns, but that can give life-changing identity to the people around us. Lord, we pray all this through your Holy Spirit. Amen.